0: You know, you just hit me with a sledgehammer, it was insane. So I hit it and immediately I fell in the road and I lay in a fetal position with my legs and my hip still on the road. The rest is on the side of the road. And there I lay. And um, I just immediately started screaming and uh, I couldn't breathe. And immediately I just started vomiting blood. I mean, I can still remember, I just saw blood everywhere. Cause I'm lying on my side I couldn't move the pain was just too much.
1: So you're fully conscious yeah straight yeah. after this crash coherent but knowing something's yeah. wrong You've, I mean you're fully you co- vomiting blood you, you I, can't think I that's breathe. I screaming help help
0: help me I can't breathe help me help me yes the pain was insane and I remember the guys racing past also yelling obviously for other guys to avoid me yeah, and the next thing another guy came around the corner, but he, he, he just rode straight into me.
1: He's carrying huge face. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. He's getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Whoa. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello, and how's it going? This is Moving the Needle Podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Niertling. If you're tuning in for the first time, thanks so much for taking the time to download this episode and listen in. Now, we all know I come from a mountain bike background, a downhill background, so I know a lot of you listeners and fans are huge mountain bike fanatics, and that's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But when I launched the podcast, I always had a feeling I'd go, say, a little bit off topic or try find some guests that could really inspire you, that have pushed the boundaries, that really kind of inspire me and I have found one, don't you worry. That voice you just heard is Grand Lottring, a South African extreme endurance athlete now. But back then, well that story he's recounting is when he faced a near death experience and a huge crash he had over in Europe. He was told he would never ride a bicycle again. It was a passion and dream of his to compete and ride bicycles. So 11 months later, he actually went back to Europe, And he competed that race that he had the horrific crash in. Doctors said he would never ride a bicycle. Think about that. He is now an extreme endurance athlete. He is pushing boundaries. He's raising funds for charity. He's doing so much good. So guys, without further ado, listen to this awesome episode with Grant Lottering. Well, guys, I always knew I was going to go down different tangents, maybe you expecting a downhill podcast or other things, but today I've got a survivor, international speaker, extreme endurance cyclist. It's a man, the story that I actually followed when I was racing and used as some inspiration because there's ever a reason not to give up. Compare yourself to what this man has gone through. So I've got none other than Grant Lottring here, and we're going to dig into... His surviving, his near-death experience, and what he's doing now. So, Grant, how are we doing today? And welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for
0: us. How's it, Andrew? Thanks for having me on. Uh, Moving the needle. It's um, yeah, I'm pretty excited with this one. Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm doing good.
1: That's great, to Yeah, I um, when I reheard about your story, I I remembered. But hang on, I've watched your videos and I heard your story. Fellow South African, and I and I used it during my training days. So it's it's actually quite an honour to to sit virtually and um, just hear about it because you've always had a passion for cycling, right?
0: Oh yeah, since I was twelve, it's been my only sport that I've ever excelled in. Everything else with a ball, anything I had to run, I always came last. I <laughs> <That> was useless. <laughs> but uh...
1: South Africa is uh, it's known for our mainstream sports: our rugby, our cricket, you know, um, the Commonwealth sports. Um, and cycling wasn't that popular. I would imagine back when you started, it was really laughed at to be a cyclist.
0: Yeah, it was. You know, to to quite an extent. I mean, when when I, I mean, when I was thirteen, I went to high school as we call it here in South Africa, and um, you know, all the boys were playing rugby and cricket and and tennis and athletics, and I wanted I wanted to ride a bicycle. And they're like, what? That's not a sport. They didn't even recognise it as a school sport. You know, and. Um, yeah, but, but then again, in those days, back, and I'm talking about the late 80s, the racing scene with the pros and the juniors and the amateurs was very, very strong here. It was brilliant, purely road racing. So I got to race with pros like Atkis Bezaydnot and Alan van Yeren and all those big, um, famous ex-South Africans when I was a little junior, which nowadays you can't do it anymore. So there was a lot of good with it too back then.
1: And you had aspirations and are accomplished road racer. I know you had some master's accomplishments and you, you went overseas to compete in big amateur events and even pro events,
0: correct? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I did my national service after school. Uh, but when I was um, in like grade 12, when I was 18, I already had my, my colors, my springboard colors. And um, there was already interest from pro teams to sign me up, but I was too young. Back then they had a rule in South Africa, you can't turn pro until you're 21. <laughs> so I um, I did my military service and straight after I signed up with a pro team. And um, yeah, I actually went and raced in Belgium for a season, which is great. And uh, But we were still banned back then. You know, I had to race under a false name.
1: You did under a false name. I've heard all these stories. You did that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Eric Stevens was my name. I was a Dutchman.
1: Was you, <laughs> was aren't you since What do you mean you were a Dutchman? Aren't you still a Dutchman? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I probably am. I probably am. But I think that's the closest I came to being a true Dutchman.
1: <laughs> so you, wow. So you had an alias name. And, and uh, when you got over there because you didn't want what South African Federation to see your name and results, that would have been a big issue?
0: No, they had no problem with it. But um, if we got results over there and we ended up in the in the papers and everything, and because those days you, you could only get a tourist visa. So we went over to, and it used to be Schengen visa. So we would go over and get a visa in Holland um, as a tourist. If you say you're going to do sport, they don't give you a visa because we were banned.
1: A pre-apartheid era.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the risk was you, you go over there and you get some good results and it comes out. Then yeah, um, they'll blacklist you and send you home very quickly.
1: <laughs> wow, that's, that's crazy. I, I couldn't. Think of that to race under a different name—that's so odd. But you had such a passion and drive, and, and just found a loophole to go and go and kind of scratch that itch of racing professionally.
0: That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it it also, you know, I wanted to go much further. My dream was to race in Europe as a pro, uh, but we, we couldn't. So I came back in '89 and I decided to call it quits to stop cycling competitively completely.
1: How was that decision for you?
0: Yeah, it was a bit of a tough one, but one I easily made because, you know, in hindsight, if I knew it was just two more years and we'll be able to race in Europe legally, officially, I would have stuck it out. But I came back, I thought, Grant, you're 21 now. You've got your colours, you've raced the big tours, you've achieved everything you wanted. Um, just start looking at a career going forward. There wasn't big money in cycling back then, eh? not at all. I had no ambition to race as a pro here, and then when I'm done, I open a bike shop, um, I didn't want to do that. So I decided to pack it in, but I always stayed in love with the sport, and after a few years I started riding again with mates, started doing vets racing, and just really enjoyed it. And um, So cycling always stayed in my, in my, in my genes, and my passion, in my blood.
1: So and then you were in the corporate world but still making these trips overseas and and that's obviously it's pretty tough to have you on and not start digging into that that crazy accident for you is that on one of these trips while working and training and still having a side passion for cycling you went over to Europe
0: Yeah yeah, yeah I was I ended up working over 17 years for a bank in South Africa in the actuarial and kind of consulting division and um I continued racing as a vet, which is great. We, I mean, we got such a great vets racing scene here, um, but always on the road bike. And then in 2012, I I, um, I entered for the, the UCI started with this Vets Masters Series, which was great. And then um, we had one in Peter Maritzburg. It was held here in 2012, the finals. I participated and I qualified for the 2013 one. Uh, which was in Italy, and I focused all my attention on that. That was in 2013, and that was really the first year where I decided, okay, I'm going to take this, this year and treat it as I'm um, a pro like I was in the 80s. I'm going to train properly. I'm going to get a dietitian. Uh, I'm going to train with a high-performance centre in Turkeys. I'm going to devote myself for an entire year training for this one race in the mountains in Italy because I've always been a climber. I love mountains.
1: Um, I I guess you do with some of the crazy things we're going to talk about. I mean, if there's a person that likes mountains, it has to be you. The amount of times you've gone up and down one, for these crazy impossible tours. Okay, so <laughs> you 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 had that drive, that single minded focus that that you like to get right. into. I mean, that even before the accident, you you really knew how to kind of push yourself and dedicate yourself.
0: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. I've always had that mindset, and and, and I think. Um, you know, when I do my talks at conferences and stuff, I often get questions about the mind. How do, I, how do I do what I do mentally? And I've always had that mental toughness right from school. I mean, I, would, I was in school in the afternoons. I would go and train. I'd get home. I'd get on my bike. I'd go and train 100 k's on my own on a week, weekday afternoon when I'm like 16 years old. Get home just before dark. Where do you think that comes from? Gee, I don't know. Eh? I must maybe I was just born with it. It was just that single absolute drive and dedication to succeed in what I'm doing. And I think it was also a bit of um I was actually bullied a lot at school, Because eh? I was very scrawny and I'm riding a bike. I've got this funny tan and all this stuff going on. And everybody else plays rugby and Grant rides a bicycle. You know, he's a you know, he's a wuss, you know. I'm
1: I'm hearing some similarities. I'm hearing yeah, I'm some- Yeah, I'm sure. I was always the BMX skinny kid. uh, Yes, exactly. It was an easy easy thing to get teased about because it was not very well known.
0: Exactly. Not like now it's on
1: Super Sport, on Red Bull TV. I had a conversation today and he was like, is that what you used to do, the thing I'm watching? I'm like, yeah. And it's only now becoming understood and getting respected, the sport, I guess, of… Exactly. 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 Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Back then, you were the odd one out, you know. So.
1: so, so was there a little bit of like, and excuse my French, like an F you to the bullies and like you kind of wanted to make something of cycling or yourself and show it to the guys that were playing rugby or maybe teasing you?
0: Very much. Very much. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to, to, yeah, look, I mean, I wasn't too phased about what people thought, but um, what people said did bug me a lot, and I wanted to prove them wrong. My teachers also was giving me a real hard time for not willing to play rugby, not willing to run around the field 200 times with everybody else, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, I wanted to prove them wrong. Yeah, for sure.
1: Were those were those voices in your head when you were out training and maybe doing hard workouts? Do you think those things like stick with you, and you can use
0: them as fuel? Oh, I think it does, and I think I did. I did. I mean, if I can recall now what, what I was told at school, then surely it must have stuck with me, you know. But I also learned to be really thick-skinned and just focus on what it is you want to do. And 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 in a sense, I live that way today. The stuff I do, there's always people giving me opinions and giving me advice and telling me, why don't you do this and why don't you ride with that and why don't you just that, that, and that. But you've got to run your own race. Do what... Do what you have in your heart and what you committed to do. Run your own race, don't run someone else's race. And I learned that through that time in school. I was the only one riding a bicycle back then and I didn't give up, I didn't give in to all the bullying and everything else. And um, it taught me to just, yeah, yeah, I suppose just that finger was in the back of my mind, you know, all the time.
1: You know, I am so also weird. reliving a bit of youth here and going, hmm, what did drive me? So, yeah, it's it's interesting what people use to drive them. But, I mean, what a brilliant thing uh, about running your own race or riding your own race. And I think these days it's harder than ever. There's so many inputs from social media and the internet and yeah, um, to understand what to do and, and maybe find why you want to get up in the morning and what drives you that that that's that's a real challenge to to find these days and fulfill and it it sounds like wow through a crazy turn of events you've you've been forced back into following your passion and finding some real fulfillment in life now and being able to pass that on with the speaking and these all these tours that you're doing yeah i yeah you you are so right
0: because um you know before my accident um I wasn't really sure what I was meant to do with my life, you know. Um,
1: Even though you've been working for 17 years, eh? you were just like, I don't think this is it. It's not me. Yeah, it
0: was just a, it was a career, uh, but, but it wasn't a career that, that got me excited. It was a job, you know. And, you, you know, you, you sort of like do the best you can where you are. But um, in terms of what is my purpose in life, really, you know, a lot of people don't think that deep because they never put in a position where they have to. I ended up in that position and I had to ask myself serious questions. Grant, listen, dude, you just um, survived this year. Um, Surely you're not just going to go back to live life the way it was before it happened. This happened for a reason. There's something you've got to do here, figure out what it is, you know. So I was literally thrown into that situation of saying, okay, so I'm here. What am I going to do with it? You know, life took a turn for the worse. Am I going to be a victim or am I going to take it and do something with it?
1: Well, for the for the listener that doesn't know your story, can can you catch us up and maybe describe getting to that point where you were forced to make a decision and look at your life and your life's purpose? You you were out in Italy preparing for this race or on the race?
0: Yeah, I was preparing for it. So um so how it works is is um They've got qualifying races every year for the Masters Championships, all the different age categories. And, and in 2013, I qualified for the 40 to 44 age category. And um, so I knew the race would be in Italy and, and it was in Trento. It was right in the area of the Stelvio Pass and the Gavia and the, the Paso Giao, all those big Dolomite mountains. It was in that area. Trento is the main capital of Trentino, smack bang in the middle of all those mountains. So you can ride in any direction, you're going to hit a big mountain to ride over. And uh, the race route also finished on top of the one mountain, and I was like, man, this is perfect for me. I'm a climber. And in South Africa, you never have races where you climb, because no one does it, you know? So I always end up competing with sprinters and fast guys, and yet here is an opportunity to race in a big race. And I I trained incredibly hard. So. But then I saw, as I was preparing, I thought to myself, Grant, you know, you're going to go over and do this race, but you've never raced in Italy before. You've never ridden there before. You've got to get over there at least and ride the mountains. And then I saw there's a race there every year. It's called the Legendaria Charlie Gaul. It's a strange name, but it's named after a, a Frenchman who won a stage in a Tour de France in the 50s in snow and blizzard and everything in Trento. And they've always honoured that event every year with a sportive, like a Grand Fondo. It's 140 k's, and you ride over four big mountains. You climb almost 5,000 meters in 140 k's. Pretty tough one. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and that was going to be the route of the race that we're going to compete in, so very tough. So that was two months ahead of the actual world champs that I qualified for. So yeah, I I booked a whole month off work, and I went over to France. I based myself in France for a few weeks, and I went over to Italy. Spent a week there training, and then I had the race itself, which is two months ahead of the world champ. So I was then going to come back, and then I've ridden the race. I know what I need to work on with my last bit of training, and then go back to do the actual event.
1: That was the that was the plan.
0: That was the plan. Yeah. 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 We Sometimes all have plans, plans in look life, scary, but not in practice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, I was there, and and uh, I, I remember. I mean, I'd already gone over the route and all that, and, and, and I knew, like, this is like hectic stuff. Eh? You know, some of those mountains and the Dolomites, you, you watch it on the Tour of Italy and all that. It's like, you've got to know what you're doing. You're going to ride a bike there. It's, um, it's, it's not like riding the Cape Town Cycle Tour. You've got serious descents and technical roads. You go through little villages, cobblestones, everything in that race that you can think of, it's in it. Yes, and the day before it started raining and it rained like mad right through the night and uh, the next morning it stopped but by the time we got to the square the piazza in Trento, which is where you know it was the start of the race and there was this atmosphere and you could hear the microphones and the speakers right from the hotel and i arrived there and everything was soaking wet the cobblestones were wet and uh, I was in the front group because I was qualified for the world, so I, I got an f- upfront entry. And um, I was standing in the all these other guys, and I could see these guys are serious heaters. they like in shape, but it's just veins everywhere, and they're as scrawny as anything. And you could see, like, you know, this is, like, serious stuff. And they're all there to prepare for the world champs. Um, yes, and the commentator said, and, and they warned everybody, and said, guys, be careful. It's wet up in the mountains. Um, be careful, it, it's going to be dangerous, and uh, yeah, I remember thinking, yes, go on, just take it easy, hey? don't be a hero.
1: So you were aware and, and were quite nervous of like how treacherous these mountains could be on these skinny road bike tyres. I, I mean, no TV does those roads justice in the Tour de France, Jerry Talia,
0: whatever. I see, yeah. And... Um, so yeah, we, we we head off, and uh, the first 10 k's out of Trento was a neutral zone, but I mean, our, we were doing like 60 k's an hour out of Trento, we were flying, eh? I was just hanging on. Full speed, eh? They just took off, like, like you know, any, anyway, so we reached after about 20 k's You get to the foot of the first mountain, and um, it's not a big climb, it's only about 7 or 8 k's, quite steep, very narrow, and I managed to stay near the front, uh, I was about... I was with a group of about six, seven guys when we reached the summit of the first climb and we yeah. were only about hundred meter off the front little group. So I figured, Grant, just stay with these guys because we get the descent on the other side, then there's a valley road and we should be able to catch up with them. And uh, yes, we started that descent. We went through that little town and immediately you see the signboard with a downhill that says caution, 17%, I'll never forget that, 17% gradient downhill. And we just shoot through that town like, like you know, it was just a blur, straight down the other side. The road is wet and we're just flying. And I was so nervous, eh? Yes, and you go through these sweeping corners. And I was trying to stay with these six guys. And then you get to sections where the road is dry because of the sun, and then it's okay. And then you come around a corner and there's water on the road. And so we, we descended about four k's and uh, we came through this long sweeping S-bend And um, I was sitting at the back, because these guys were familiar with the road, I was not, so I was just following them. And uh, yes, we went through this one corner, and and I I didn't follow the same line. Maybe it was a lack of concentration, I don't know, but I saw water on the road, and I think it put me off, and I went into that corner a bit too wide, and I remember before my crash, I looked at my computer, I was doing 66 k's an hour as we entered that corner. And next thing, I was in the water and I just lost a bit of control of my bike. I didn't fall, but I just went straight on. And I just saw this rock embankment in front of me. And uh, it just came up so quickly. Do you, do you
1: remember anything before, I mean, hitting the rock? and, and... Yeah, I remember everything, everything. You can still remember that to this day.
0: I remember it because um, I didn't even scratch my helmet. It's quite bizarre. So, um, you know, I saw the footage afterwards and I saw that my brother came from Ireland to support me in hospital and he went to take pictures of the corner and the, 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 the drainage ditch next to the road and all that stuff. And of course, I, I can remember I entered the corner, but it's so fast. And um, I remember I bunny hopped my bike over the drainage ditch and I just saw this rock in front of me and I remember just thinking, don't eat your head. And I literally just... I remember I'm leaning to the left, it's a left-hand corner, and I remember just turning my right shoulder in and just ducking and just thinking, just don't hit your head. And with my right shoulder and my back, I just went straight into the into the rock. Um, And I mean, obviously it, it was like, it was like, you know, you just hit me with a sledgehammer. It was insane. So I hit it and immediately I fell in the road and I lay in a fetal position with my legs and my hip still on the road. The rest is on the side of the road. And there I lay. And um, I just immediately started screaming. And uh, I couldn't breathe. And immediately I just started vomiting blood. I mean, I can still remember. I just saw blood everywhere. Because I'm lying on my side. I couldn't move. The pain was just too
1: much. So you're fully conscious
0: straight yeah, after yeah. this
1: crash, coherent, but knowing something's wrong. You've. I mean, you've... Yeah, vomiting blood. You you can't think that's a good thing. I was screaming, help,
0: help, help me! I can't breathe. Help me, help me! said yes, the pain was insane, and I remember the guys racing past, also yelling, obviously for other guys to avoid me. Yeah, and the next thing, another guy came around the corner, but he he, he just rode straight into me, and he he, yeah, he crashed straight into me. He broke my right femur just below the hip.
1: Oh. So it was oh. a second crash from a guy hitting yeah. you. The femur wasn't even from the initial one.
0: Yeah, he rode straight into me. Poor he just rode my femur right off uh, but like as in right off it almost stuck out of my skin. Um yeah, that was hectic, eh. And um
1: can you feel pain now when you speak about it? Like
0: um no, no, not really, but I can still vividly remember it, you know. Um for
1: the listeners, I'm sitting here gobsmacked. I think I've my jaws like I I can't even, I don't even know what to say. Oh, it just sounds so horrific. Yeah, it was
0: hectic. But that guy stayed with me. But I remember just screaming all the time because I didn't realize, but both, um, both my lungs punctured because I had 12 rib fractures on the right, including three on the left. And my sternum broke. My sternum, I, had a, I had a compound fracture of my sternum, which... The sternum and the female are the two hardest bones to break, you know, so it was just completely broken. Um, My shoulder was crushed. Um, I had two two compound fractures in my spine. My hip was broken as well. And I had a lot of internal bleeding and I had a massive laceration on my right arm and I lost so much blood, so much blood. Um, But yeah, so I, I had all these internal injuries and I couldn't breathe. So my lungs were starting to collapse. My thorax collapsed. Um, and uh, I can remember the guys just yelling for someone to come and help. Um, and the guy who crashed into me was an English guy or, a, or an American guy, and he stayed with me. He put his hand on my neck because I had a laceration on my neck as well. so losing a lot of blood there, um, and he stayed there with me. I've still got his glove that he brought to the hospital with my blood on it. It's quite, quite freaky, <laughs> but i still got it.
1: <laughs> At least you can make jokes about it now.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. Yes, it's crazy. But he was a good Samaritan. He stayed there the whole time, tried to calm me down. And um, then another guy came around that corner, a South African whom I met the day before in a piazza, also there to race, Christo Grunewald. And uh, he had a GoPro on his helmet. He recognized me and he stopped. And he stayed there and he filmed that graphic footage that that you saw on my website. He found that he was right there. Um, So I I got his account of events. So in that time, eventually, um, the the race official car came, and I was very fortunate because I was so far up the race, the the official race car was behind me. And in the race car with the main race referee was the head of ICU from the emergency hospital in Trento. He was in the car. Thank
1: goodness, really. He was. Wow. Yeah, it's (laughs)
0: incredible. So they came across the scene, he jumped out, he had his stuff with him and immediately started working on me. He called the ambulance, he called the, air, he had the helicopter, he knew immediately they're going to need to airlift me. He could see immediately like the way this guy was lying and everything. Something was terribly wrong. He could see I couldn't breathe anymore. So um, I just got to a point um, during that time, you know, I don't know how long it was. He told me they, they spent about 20 minutes trying to revive me and get my heart going. They shocked me twice with defibrillators and all that stuff to try and get me going. But I can remember um, before all that where I was lying there and by then there was quite a few people around me. He was there. The other guy was there. Christo was there. A few other medics were arriving <clears throat> and um, I remember I was lying there and next thing I couldn't feel that thing. Eh? I had no pain. It was just, it's like they tranquilized me, like they injected me with something. I just suddenly had no pain, nothing at all. Um, and then I couldn't hear anyone. I could still see people around me, because now I'm lying on this fetal position, and so I'm looking out of the corner of my eye. Up, I can still remember the sun shining in my face, and I see these faces above me. And then um, I couldn't hear anybody. And then I could just hear my heart beating in my chest. I couldn't breathe, you know. So it just got to that point where the best way to describe it was like you put me in a soundproof room and you close the door. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't feel anything. And then I couldn't see anything. Um, But I was still conscious. And I remember, because I mean, I'm a person of faith, you know. I I believe and I pray and all that stuff. And I remember lying there just thinking, God, I'm dying. you had that busy thought. yeah for sure yeah yeah I'll never forget it um take me I'm dying
1: what did that feel like
0: yeah it was weird it was um it it was like i I experienced a peace that um I've never experienced since eh? you know you can you can go sit up in a mountain somewhere and be in nature and just have peace around you, but this was different, this was different it's like Maybe it's like being in space. I don't know, but it was just, I just experienced a peace that is just, I can't describe it, you know. Um, And, uh, yeah, then I woke up and I see you the next day.
1: (laughs) So there there was a point where you, sounds like you were at peace and and felt, wow, I, I think I'm actually dying here. And then it, does it go blank and you wake up, in ICU, is there a dream phase or is it quite quick from I think I'm dying, I'm at peace to I'm in ICU?
0: How- yeah, I've got no idea. I, I really don't know. And look, I didn't see any lights. I wasn't in a tunnel. I didn't see any, any in-laws or outlaws or anybody waiting for me on the other end. None of that stuff. You know? But <laughs> Did um, your
1: life flash between? Did you have flashbacks of your whole life quickly like I they can. do in the movies?
0: No, but in, not at all, not at all, but, but but in that moment, it was almost like I was detached from the chaos that was going on. I was aware of it, I was aware, but I just had this absolute, absolute peace, you know? So it, it was like, it's almost like, that's bizarre, it's so difficult to explain it, you know? Um, I've, I'm still actually at times trying to put it into words that it actually makes sense, but. Um, yeah, it's almost like just, you experience yourself, but from from another angle, completely a different angle.
1: Is, you know? is an is a outer body some way of experiencing it? Like you're looking down on you?
0: Yeah, but, but I think it was more subconsciously than consciously. Okay. Because that, that, I mean, I've read a lot about this and try to study it as well, because, because for a lot of people, before you die, your, your cognitive mind, shuts down, your body shuts down, but your subconscious mind is still still active and still going. So I think in that sense my my you know, because I couldn't breathe the lack of oxygen, all that stuff, but my conscious mind was still quite aware. And and I think in that sense I was talking to God and I could experience peace. Whereas I was fully aware what my body was going through at the same time.
1: Wow, there's like a disconnect there.
0: Yeah, completely. So that that moment changed my life completely. If I had hit the rock and lost consciousness, I, w- I wouldn't be aware of any of this stuff. But because I was up to that point, and I can still relive it and speak about it, that that had such a change in my life. Um, complete change in my life. Complete. Total.
1: Talk me through that change. What, what changed or what spurred you to...
0: Yeah, so I came around in ICU, it was about 34 hours later, um, They, they, I was in surgery for quite a while, um, they had to put a pin in my femur and my hip, they just had to like put a K wire through my shoulder because my shoulder was crushed, I had a floating shoulder they call it, so every attachment of my shoulder was gone, it was torn and broken, shoulder blade, my, my, my collarbone disintegrated, I still don't have one, I've got a plate, We've had two bone grafts, and we're still trying to restore my collarbone seven years later. And I figured, let's just leave this thing. Let's just leave it. I mean, I've got a plate. It's okay. It's not bugging me, you know, so let's just leave it. It's
1: like <laughs> but, a modern-day Robocop so, in there.
0: <laughs> so they couldn't fix my shoulder there, but they had to just stabilize it. So they just put this long piece of wire from outside my shoulder in to where my collarbone used to be. And... uh it stayed like that, and they stabilized me. So I came around in ICU, and I remember that was very traumatic for me because um, I came around in ICU, and um, obviously I'm heavily sedated, and I've got a tube in my throat, so I, I, I couldn't make a sound. I came around, but I couldn't move. I couldn't move my hands. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move a thing, and I couldn't make a – you know, I don't know if you've ever had a tube in your throat. You, you can't even clear your throat. You cannot make a sound. Was that scary? Yeah, I came round and I thought I was paralysed. I lay there for a bit. I saw these machines around me and I hear the beeping and everything. And um, yes, yeah, I thought I was paralysed. Eh? But I, I, I didn't know how bad my injuries were. But I, I tried to move and I couldn't. I thought like, no, no, I can't be paralysed. This can't be happening. And then I looked to the right and I saw my brother sitting next to me, on his laptop. He, he lives in Holland. He drove down that very day. And then. My heart rate started spiking and he saw me and he called the doctors over and I went into a complete panic. They sedated me and I came around a while back later. And uh, yeah, Glenn was there and um, I had a thing to write on. So I just wanted to know what happened. What's my injuries? How bad is it? Thanks for being here, but (laughs) All those things. And we started communicating. Um, And then uh, yeah, the doctors came over and they called me dead man walking. I'll never forget that.
1: That's what you were known as, patient named Dead Man Walking or what?
0: Yeah, 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 That, yeah, that that's what the guys told me, yeah. Of course, um, they, they just couldn't believe I'd survived this thing, you know. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, that was that was a bit of a traumatic thing to come around and, you know, to be lying there not knowing what actually happened. So then they explained to me my injuries, and I, by then I knew, okay, you're not paralyzed, you're going to be okay. But I just wanted to know will I ride a bike again? And I said, you know, it no, definitely not. Your shoulder, you're going to need reconstructive surgery. You're never going to have full use of your shoulder again. You know, all the bad news stuff. And um, yeah, so it was a bit of a bummer at that stage for me.
1: They were like, they give you the worst case scenario, don't they?
0: They always do, eh? Without giving you any other option, yeah. So yeah, that, um, I, I think, yeah, that, but it didn't affect me that much because I was just too happy to be alive, eh? Yes, see, and my boot was there.
1: You mentioned the word peace. Was there a feeling of peace once you'd been given the diagnosis and, and you had survived? Was there was a level of peace that you were alive?
0: No, not at all, but gratitude, definitely.
1: Gratitude, okay. Yeah,
0: gratitude. for sure. Not peace. I was annoyed. I was angry, man. I was like, I trained a whole year for this. Flipping hell, and really? what happened?
1: In the hospital, he had, a, he had gratitude, but anger as well.
0: I was I was disappointed. Yeah, for sure. I trained all year. I wanted to go to the, <laughs> the world. So I'm not gonna get there. I was so annoyed. Yeah, see, I said to my brother, I said to him, But I can't believe this happened. I mean, seriously.
1: Isn't that human nature in a nutshell? Like gratitude for an hour and then pissed off that you can't do worlds. Exactly. You survive. Survive.
0: Yeah, I trained so hard and everything. I'm I'm there in France spending a fortune and now I'm not even doing the race, you know. So oh,
1: stuck in a hospital bed, but let alone you survived That's... and people just didn't yeah, it's yeah, crazy, yeah. God. But I think fuck that's the human mind, isn't it? Yeah, you gotta
0: be brutally honest, you know. That's that's how I felt. And um Yeah, that time in ICU, those nine days were were like really hectic. Eh? I said people were dying all around me, and you know, it was hectic. Um and um quite literally, sick people around me, and I just get wheeled in and out. Eh? But um Yeah, so Glenn helped me quite a bit. He helped me to make sense of things. And, you know, so I started to become more grateful that I'm not paralyzed, I'm happy to be alive. And yeah, and then on the 12th day, I was transferred to eye Well, when I was in eye on the 12th day, the doctor who treated me on the road, the ICU, head of ICU came to see me. I didn't know it was him. And he sat with me, I'll never forget. It was about 11 in the evening. And he said to me, I just come off shift. I wanted to see how you're doing. I treated you on the road. I was a doctor who worked on saving your life and I remember lying there like, so I'm looking you in the eyes and I owe you my life, that thing, thank you, you know, I'm so grateful. Will I ride a bike again? That's <laughs> the first thing i asked. ask <laughs> I'll never forget that. And he said to me, probably not, you know, this, is this Italian accent, probably not. I said to him, you know, you can't be serious. He said, yeah, your shoulder, you're not going to be able to return the bar again, eh? Sorry, it's just not likely. But then he said to me, But listen, yeah, you've survived death. You're the first patient I can tell that to. You survived death. There's a reason you're alive and you can do something with your life, you know, so think about it.
1: He did say that to you in the hospital. He
0: said that, yeah, he said that to me. Flip. And then he left. And uh, yes, the penny dropped, eh? That changed everything.
1: Then and there. Uh,
0: Yeah, right there for sure. I start because I've got this little blue book, I made notes. Yeah, and I wrote there, just focus on being grateful now, man. Stop moaning, you know. It could have been worse. You could be in a wheelchair the rest of your life. You're not. You're going to get through this. And, um, you, you know, I think a lot of people can learn a lot from my experience, especially when they go through trauma, physical trauma or sickness. A lot of people don't make it. They give up. They don't believe they can get well. They give up.
1: You think mentally, mentally and emotionally.
0: Yeah, because I'm a firm believer the body listens to the mind, eh? not the other way around. Your mind, your, your brain, and your body is subjective, it does what it's told to do. It responds to what you put into it. And your mind controls your brain, your brain is just a muscle, you know. So I, I just um, started focusing on tomorrow. This afternoon at 12, I want to try and get out of bed. Tomorrow by one o'clock, I want to try and reach the door even if it's just 10 steps, I'm gonna try and get there tomorrow at 10 o'clock, that type of thing. And I set myself little goals every day. And I started feeling better because I'm thinking positively. I'm thinking forward. I'm not lying there thinking about why it happened to me all the time. And it was like a massive change, hey? Massive change. And I'm not lying to you, Andrew. Two days later, I stood up out of that bed for the first time with a walker. I had nurses around me. They, They applauded me. They couldn't believe it. But I stood up out of bed about five seconds, and I had to sit. Remember, everything's broken, eh? My sternum, my back, my ribs, my shoulders mangled. My leg—I've got a femur pin in my leg. I couldn't even support myself to get up out of bed. But I managed that day. They helped me, but it was a massive breakthrough. And I realised, this is how strong the mind is. Just see yourself walking out of this hospital.
1: Did you do some? Did you do visualization of that?
0: Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Very much, I did. I would, I mean, I put his iPod with me and I was just listening to like really lacquer music, you know, <laughs> real upbeat, trance-type music.
1: What's your go-to? What's your go-to? you remember? Have you got like some favorites from back then?
0: Yeah, BT and um, a, a few other ambient trance and trance house, garage-type songs and stuff. I've still got it. Yeah, it still reminds me. It still takes me back to the hospital when I listen to it. And uh, it was just like energetic music to just... You know, I would lie there just picturing myself walking to that door, <laughs> just I'm gonna get to that door.
1: And then what, within a day or two you would go and do that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So after 21 days I managed to actually walk to the toilet, unaided. It took about half an hour and listen, the toilet was about 10 meters from me, eh? not very far. But you did it. But I managed to get there, yeah. And um, I remember the one nurse came and said to me, they just cannot believe how fast I'm recovering. They said, this is remarkable. And then they gave the clear or or the approval for me to get flown home to South Africa. So yeah, came home.
1: And you you attest that to your mind and your attitude is what I'm
0: hearing. Absolutely, for sure, very much so. Even now, everything I do, I cannot do it if I don't have the right mindset. It's just not going to happen.
1: Are there, days, are there days when you don't and you actually, I mean, do you have bad days now?
0: <laughs> Plenty. <laughs> well,
1: that's good, yes, that's good to know. That's good to know. I mean, it's not realistic that every day is good or you're always positive. You kind of got to like, I don't know, trick yourself yeah. or go, okay, didn't have a good day. Tomorrow is another day.
0: Yeah, you can't be on top of things. I have my bad days. Sure. I mean, there's days where I'm supposed to go and train for 10 hours and I get up in the morning and I don't even go and train one hour. I'm just not up for it. Okay. And I just give myself that slack. I just cut myself that slack, and I'll do it tomorrow. You know. So, um, yeah. It's um, but but I think what I learned from using mental strength is um, to couple that with with visualization, just really seeing yourself doing what it is you've set out to do. Um, if you're, you know, like if I have to go and train five hours today, I wake up in the morning, and I'll just quickly visualize it, you know, just see myself finishing strong. And I'm ready and I and do it. Um, but like I said, there's days where I wake up and I'm just not up for it and then I don't. I don't. So yeah, it's like, um, <clears throat> people think, you, you know, someone like me that goes through that type of stuff and do the rides I do, I'm just cruising every day and how do you do it? But it's not the case at all, you know, you've got to be real. With yourself as well
1: yeah i mean t- talk to us about these rides and where your life has gone because it's not just that you're a survivor you you're motivating people you're an international speaker you're learning all sorts of new skills and 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 giving back to people and charity and inspiring people yeah take us to yeah to how you found your new passion and, and purpose in life and where it's taking you now
0: Yeah, so um, it it really started when I was in hospital still in Italy, um, the one day I just wrote down, I'm coming back in 2014 to finish the race. I told my brother I'm going to come back, and he said, Grant, don't make decisions too quickly. There's still a lot of work to be done. But I made it my goal. So by the time I got back to South Africa, (laughs) I had this thing fixed in my mind that I'm going back. In 12 months, I'm going to be back in Italy. I'm going to finish the race. That's my goal. In the
1: hospital, you did that already?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. How
1: many times have you been called crazy?
0: <laughs> Too many.
1: <laughs> do you care? You don't care, do you? Why would you? Yeah.
0: Yeah. We're all crazy in a way, aren't we? I like, oh, well, that <laughs> I, I can agree. If I look at what, look at what you do on a bike, I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I just think
1: everyone has their own, and own thing. And for you, it's normal. Yeah, so. I guess I meant it more like there's naysayers. Like, you can't do that. And you're like, good for ah, you. You just time. seem to ignore that and and, and decide what you're capable of doing. That that was why I kind of brought that up, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, yeah, I came back, um, and my challenge was to find a surgeon. I needed to get surgery done. I needed to fix my shoulder, my legs, everything. My lungs were badly damaged. I needed a pulmonologist and all this stuff. So to make a long story very short, um, I ended up in four months since I came back. I came back, um, I think it was the 12th of August I was back. And by the 11th of November, I had my full surgery already. And it was all with the same surgeon, Dr. Webster and Jobok in St. Medi Clinic. He worked on me. He was still adamant I won't be ready to go back and do the race because I said to him, I want to go and do this race. He said, it's for- impossible you can forget it. I said to him, I'm going to do it. Can you help me? He said, okay, I'm not going to stop you, am I? And he said, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to fix up your shoulder. We're going to do the following. We're not going to reconstruct your shoulder blade, we're going to leave it, because if we do that, you will definitely won't ride for two years. We're going to focus on this, that, and that, and that. He said, I need to get you to a pulmonologist, he referred me to someone so we can work on my lungs. My lung function was very bad, um, you, you weigh 57, I weigh 70 now, I weighed 57 when I got back to South Africa. I mean, I looked like I've just been in the desert for, <laughs> for two months, <laughs> or a year or whatever. They said, you need a nutritionist, you need a biokineticist, you need a physio, we need to get the shoulder moving. And uh, we started working on it. eh? And um, yeah, I mean, I went to rehab three times a week instead of once a week. Um, I'd have surgery today and three days later, I'm at physio to get a bit of rehab. (laughs) You know, it was insane. But I was driven by that plan because by then I knew 1 Feb 2014, I must be on my bike on the road. I have to do my first ride, which I did. Did you stick to that? I stuck to it. First of Feb, 2014, I started training out on the road. I couldn't ride more than 10 k's, I had to get off.
1: What did that feel like, that first ride?
0: Oh, yes, yes, it hit me hard. I Now realised, realize, Grant, you know, are you being realistic here? But is this going to happen? Um, because my shoulder, I couldn't reach my handlebars properly yet. So I put a shorter stem on my bike. I moved my saddle right forward, just so I can reach the handlebars. But I couldn't pull, I couldn't do anything. And the pain was excruciating. Eh? Oh, my goodness. But my, my, you know, when you break your leg, your muscle degenerates completely. I mean, I had no, my quad was gone, my hamstring was gone, my, my VMO was invisible. And you remember trying to ride my bike. <laughs> so it hit me hard. But anyway, I, I stuck at it. Every day I would go back. And um, I mean, at that stage I was still I went back to work already, but I was only going half day. So afternoons, I would drive out with my car and go and ride my bike. Go home. Yeah, so um, yeah, by um, after eleven months, I was back in Europe, and I went to do the La Marmotte first, which was a hundred and seventy k race in France, finishing on Alpe d'Huez.
1: I've ridden, I've ridden that on a road bike. It is so steep.
0: Yeah, I did that two weeks before my big race where I crashed and that I wanted to go finish. Okay. But, it, it, it was beautiful, Andrew, so I'm, I'm not um, going to talk too long on this, but it, it, it was just so incredible how people rallied around what I was trying to do. Yes, I had tons of people telling me I'm stupid, I'm irresponsible, who do you think you are, you're crazy, if you fall, you realize what's going to happen, you can't even walk properly, how are you going to do that, blah blah blah. I just started to visualize myself finishing the ride. I would spend every day, every night, I'd lie in bed and just picture myself riding the whole race, finishing it, putting my arms in the air when I finish. My brother was there, he took a picture of it, it's on my website. It's, I mean, that picture to me is worth millions. Um, It was just, you did it. I rode over eight hours to finish our 170K race, 11 months after my accident.
1: But you did it.
0: I did it. And I remember that same picture, I took it to Dr. Webster one day and um, he didn't know I was there because he didn't want me to go and I blew it up into a big A3 and I wrote on there, thank you and I gave it to him and I went there one day and he looked at it and said, like, what's this? I said, I've just come back from France, i finished the race.
1: He probably he couldn't, there's no ways he believed that.
0: He could not believe it, he just looked at it, he looked at me, he shook his head and he just said, that's remarkable, I can't
1: believe it. I thought you said you didn't hit your head in that crash. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable man, to hear it like I know the story but to sit here and, and see you tell it, I feel like I'm there with you and I can't understand the emotions you must have felt to just take that I one off. I
0: was yeah, My brother was there at the finish line with his, his now wife and my nephew and niece was there. They ran the last 500 meters up to the finish line with me. Uh, my brother or my nephew took his shirt off and he wrote on his chest, go Grant. And he was running next to me over the finish line, you know, just crazy. And everybody cried that the the doctor from ICU was there to finish waiting for me. The tourism board was there because they helped me. They sponsored my whole trip there, believe it or not.
1: That's that's amazing.
0: Yeah. First, it was the guy almost died in the race to the guy who's come back to finish the race. So it was a beautiful story, you know, in itself. Yes, and that afternoon, I had my first beer since the accident. We went to a local pub that evening, and we just celebrated. I had a few beers, and uh, I remember I said to my brother, I but this was my impossible tour. Everybody said it's impossible. I'm saying to you, I'm possible. I said, I want to do this every year. I am going to come back and do a, another ride. So,
1: Is that what speared all these crazy rides and goals and impossible tours that you do now? I mean, that seeing that you could do that 11 months later, is that where you were like, this is just the beginning
0: then? That's where it started, yeah, because um and I also spoke to Dr. Webster when I came back, to turned doc because the, the, the remarkable thing for me was, I came back from Europe and it was about three weeks later, I had to go for my seventh surgery in my shoulder after doing that ride. I still, and I mean, I still had a surgery in 2015 as well, 2016. So, um, and I said to him, uh, you know what, um, I'm going to call this the impossible tour. And, and you know, I just had my GoPro, eh? it was me and my GoPro, came back, a good mate of mine um, was a very good video producer, he put it into a little video for me. I showed it to Joel Stransky, and uh, he, he said, this is unbelievable, you've you got to do something with this, I can't believe you've done this. And he knows Dan Nicol, next thing Dan Nicol said, I'll narrate this for you, let's, let, let's make it into a video. He booked this recording studio for me for free everything, he narrated the video, and that was that first one on my website, yeah. From Death to the Top yeah. of the Alps, first one, and I turned it into a video, you know, and the thing just went viral, and I've shared it, I mean, it's only got about 6,000 views on YouTube, but it's because of the um, the graphic footage, YouTube blocks it all the time because of the graphic footage in there, but, um, I mean, that thing has been shown on TV, in Europe on TV, it's been seen by millions, you know, all over the world. Um, and that's where it started, and I thought, like, okay, so I could barely walk, I couldn't carry a bag, but I finished the race. So what can I do when I've recovered? And I got this idea, maybe if I come back 2015, do a 24 hours through the Alps, right through the night, and I raise money for laureates, and I do it non-stop, that can be great. And I did, and I don't know how that idea came around, came by, but it just started to grow from there. So yeah. 2015, I did 420 Ks in 19 hours. Rode through the Alps at night with a car following me. No sleep? No sleep. No, still No, it was less than a day. It's like most people can go a day without sleeping. It's not that bad. I don't know about um, most
1: people. I, I guess physically <laughs> you can survive. I don't know if... Most is a strong word to be able to <laughs> physically... I, I would have fallen as... Well, I wouldn't have made it, number one, but I would have fallen asleep as well. Okay, so no sleep, 19 hours, and how many kilometers? At at that stage, that
0: that was 420, but I I climbed 10,000 meters. I rode over 10 mountains, and I got a lot of flack for that one, because it's like, are you crazy? How can you ride through the Alps at night? Who does that? It's a stupid thing to do. It's dangerous. No one rides in the Alps at night, you know? Do you want to fall again? Haven't you learned your lesson? type thing? You know, it's crazy. And anyway, I raised a quarter of a million rand for Laureus, came back, it was a great success. And I, by then, I was already sharing my story all over the place. And next thing, Mercedes-Benz contacted me, because they're the global patron of Laureus. They phoned me and said, look, we saw what you just did now, and you raised a lot of money for Laureus. Um, what are your plans next year, 2016? I said, well, I want to do 1,000 Ks in 48 hours, through the Alps. I want to ride the full length of the French Alps. I can't find anyone that's done it under 50 hours. I'm going to try and break 50 hours, which means I'll have to ride over 21 mountains. I'll climb about 20,000 meters. It's quite a stretch. And I said, what do you need? We'll sponsor you. Oh, incredible. (laughs) Next thing, the funding was there. I based myself in France for two months in 2016 to prepare, to train. They provided me with v class cars as support vehicles, two cars, two support teams. I was able to hire a film crew, and it became a real professional setup, proper, proper.
1: And did you sleep doing that one?
0: You know, because it was forty-eight hours, um, I knew at some point I'm going to have to sleep. I mean, you know, it's like you don't try and be a hero here. It's not about can you do it without sleeping. It's about yes. doing it as fast as you can. So the faster you want to do it, means the less you can sleep. So I practiced it a bit. I rode the first thirty-three hours without sleeping at all. And then I started hallucinating. And uh, we, were, we were going up this mountain and um, at about one in the morning and I started yelling at dogs and stuff. I thought dogs were chasing me, my brother was in the car behind me and he, and he blew the horn and he got me to stop and he said, what's happening? I said, did you see that dog? He's trying to bite me. He said, no, 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 no. There's no dogs here. You're hallucinating. And we just pulled over right there and I slept for 30 minutes in the car. Um, in my clothes, I just sat in the seat, fell asleep. 30 minutes later, I was awake again. They woke me up and I had mental alertness and I went on and I did the rest of the ride and I did it 46 hours and something minutes. Um, climbed 21,000 meters, raised 1.2 million rand in that one ride. It was a huge wow, success. Wow, really? That's amazing. Yeah, I was so happy. I mean, it was more than three times further than I'd ever ridden in my life. So I was so chuffed. Eh? So, so chuffed. And it just grew from there, Andrew. Just every year I just had a bigger plan. But I approached the whole thing like a business, you know. How can I give my sponsors maximum exposure? I appointed a media agent, a PR agent. We do media releases, everything as professional as we can. I'd always have a professional photographer, a cameraman, so we can get quality footage to the media. So just do it properly, you know, and uh, it just became this. Yeah,
1: I have heard through this podcast you've been pretty, pretty, um, well, fickle to detail. You've always been prepared if you set your mind to something, but even post this thing, it's, it sounds like all about the preparation, the training, doing things right, as you say. And even now, I mean, you, you, you get up and you do it all right. And it's great that you're thinking about sponsors, you know, they're getting something out of you, but you've got to give something to them. And if you're going to go through all this heartache and lack of sleep, you might as well do yes. it properly to raise more money and, and give back. Is that what gets yeah. you up in the morning these days? Like, has it really found your purpose?
0: It has, yeah, for sure. Look, um, the thing for me, I remember in the hospital, I thought to myself, Grant, if you died today, who is going to miss you and for how long? It's quite a strange question, but I really asked myself that. I figured, okay, you've got a few close friends, you've got family. Everyone will be sad, of course, but what legacy would you have left behind? You know, what will people remember you as a cyclist? Um, And I thought, you know, I want to be relevant. eh? I want to do something with this life. I want to make a difference. Not about how many people know me, but how many people have benefited from what I do. Be it through fundraising or be it through encouraging people. You know, many messages I've received over the years through social media of people who saw my story and decided to get back to running again, get back to riding again, um, get back to exercising again, picking themselves up, overcoming what they've been through because they never did. Now, that's powerful. That that makes me feel like I'm doing something right, you know. So that's what drives me, it really is. Um, To the extent that I left my employment in 2016 already, I've been on my own since then, not looking back. Uh, continuing to do these things and, and looking for ways to be relevant and, and inspire people and, and, you know, especially children out, underprivileged kids, you know, um, which is at the heart of what I do from a fundraising point.
1: When you're When you're up on those mountains in the middle of the night thinking – I mean, there must be a voice, okay, this is enough now, Grant, sleep. Is there a a point where you do think about all the people you inspire and say, I need to keep going, I need to to try and inspire more people?
0: I do, I do. Um, Yeah, yes, it happens a lot, you know, because what makes the way I do my rides different is it's not like some of these other guys. um, And, you know, with respect, there's a lot of guys that can ride 1,000 Ks. You, you see it with the Mungo race here in South Africa and all that. It's self-supported. The Freedom Challenge is 2000Ks. they got a month to finish it. It's different. It's self-supported. Um, me, I do this as a time trial. So I ride from A to B in the fastest possible time. So yeah, I've got a support car and all that, but I go. And I've got specific places where I pull over for 10 minutes, rest a little bit, keep going. At a certain time, I start to nap, I nap every six hours, 30 minutes, and keep that routine. So it's all very well planned out and worked out, sure. But uh, even having said that, because I ride over mountains, I don't ride through the Karoo where it's pancake flat. It's hard enough as it is, sure, but I, I look for terrain where I climb as much as possible, because mountains are symbolic of what people go through. and. It's been a very good fundraising strategy for me. I sell the mountains I ride over to corporates and they pay straight to the beneficiaries. So they feel they, they're getting something out of this. Like, you're going to ride over the SWATbook Pass. Okay, we'll sponsor the SWATbook Pass. 20K. Great. Thank you very much. And then when I'm done, I give them a nice photograph of me on the SWATbook Pass with a big thank you. And that type of thing. It's, it, it's really nice. But so many times I get to a point where it's just like, oh, man, I can't go on, eh? Yes, my back's killing me, my butt, everything. Can I not just stop for a few hours? Um, But yeah, I always, what works really well for me is um, I spend a lot of time during these rides um, just reflecting back to where I've come from, what I went through, reliving what happened to me, because the power in that is it takes my mind off how I'm feeling and I'm focusing on what I'm thinking and it works, it really works. I end up, and that's where mental strength comes from. To be able to do that when you're physically absolutely shattered, it's tough to focus on what you're thinking because all you're thinking about is I'm stuffed, you know. So, um, but it makes a huge difference and, and for example now when I did this 24 hour now for Reach for a Dream, I had 30 kids who are terminally ill. I had their names in the ages, I wrote it out and stuck it on my handlebars.
1: Oh, did you, as, as, as a cue to look at that when you're mentally and physically just trained?
0: Yeah, because it was quite, I mean, I climbed Montague past 20 times in like 20-something hours, but um, there were a few times where I would just stop. I'm just like, damn, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, can I just stop? It's a tough climb, eh?
1: So for the, for the foreign listeners, how, how many meters of elevation did you do in 24 hours?
0: Uh, it was 8,600 and something, um, but it wasn't really about that. The 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 thing was, that the way we put this in the, in the media is, I want to fulfill a child's dream every time I reach the summit. Okay. The more summits I reach, the more dreams I can fulfill. So okay. yeah, so 20 summits, 20 dreams, great, but I had 30 names. So we ended up raising enough money so that all 30 names can have their dreams fulfilled. So. That is how we positioned it. So, you know, the, the, the thought came up at one point shouldn't you just, just do a 21st ascent? Because then you break Everest, then you've done, then you've Everest it. But it's like, but it's not about that.
1: It's about the beneficiaries.
0: It's about why I'm doing it. You know, with every ride I've done every year, I've climbed over 20,000 meters. So the Everesting thing is not an issue for me. It's not about that at all. And I didn't do it that way anyway. So it's always about, who benefits from this ride at the end of the day, and that makes the suffering worthwhile. And the fact that I've got people following me in a car for three, four days, it's not fun for them either. They're also going through a, through a rough time. They have to sleep in the back of the car, you know, they, have, they, they get to pull into a guest house for a few hours, have a quick shower, and then back on the road behind me. It's tough for them too, so you don't want to let them down either, you know, it's like a team thing.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you've got like a level of accountability there, you know, it's like telling someone your goal or verbalizing a goal, someone's going to check it up on, up on you. And I've, I've uh, read a lot into that. And I think, I don't know if you can tell some people, maybe if they want to chase a goal or something, they need to kind of put it out there and, and tell people about it if they really want to do something, because then people are going to expect or, or ask you about it. And you might have to f- push through on on some of these goals.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I've had that a few times and I've had one failure, which was 2017, where I was going to do 1,800 K's in four days through the Alps. But the weather was terrible. I ended up getting hypothermia after 20 hours and I had to stop. And it was a huge failure for me because I felt I had committed and I let people down and there was so much riding on it. But um, the thing is, until you commit to something, nothing changes, does it? You've got to commit to it. You can set a goal, but a lot of people have goals, but they're not really committed to it. You've got to commit.
1: Yeah, I think even if you visualize things, you've actually still got to get up and walk to the toilet and let it take yes. 30 minutes, as you were saying. Like, even if you visualize it, yes. that's great, but you've got to act.
0: Yes, exactly, and that's where the commitment comes in. You know, so um, <clears throat> every year I've committed myself to doing something that I haven't done before. Yeah. Um, So I know I better prepare as best I can for this thing. I need to make sure that I do everything in my ability to give myself the best chance of succeeding.
1: (laughs) And what's what's next? What's next in the I'm Possible Tour? I love that. I'm Possible. That's a great slogan.
0: Yeah, well, look, it's it's really exciting because it's now caught on in the States. I mean, I've got a sponsor in the States next year. I'm doing an I'm Possible Tour in the States next year, which is through California and the Sierra Nevada and all that. (laughs) <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. But um, yeah, 24th of November, I'm starting uh, my, my South African Impossible Tour, second one here in this country. Last year, I did uh, my first one in South Africa from uh, Potensi, which is near Jeffrey's Bay, all the way to the pole. It was 1,300 k's. And I rode 66 hours, um, climbed 12,500 meters, and napped about two and a half hours in total. Um, but it was all off-road for of the first time. It was hellishly hard. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to up it a bit this year. And my goal is to see if I can ride 2,000 Ks in 100 hours. Wow. <laughs> That's the plan. 2,000 Ks.
1: Yeah. How do we go about supporting it and, and, and donating and, and getting involved, Grant?
0: yeah we're still working on that I'm writing it as a Laureus ambassador um, <clears throat> the focus really is to see can I do this right can I pull it off um, so we'll do a media release in the next week or so and I'll put some info on my website and that um, so I'll, I'll be I'll be looking to sell a few mountains for, for the uh, for the charities at Laureus Sport for Good Support in South Africa they support almost 30 maybe over 30 by now um we take kids off the street you know so i, I really want to do that and and we generally the best way we generally do it is um you know we just um we just do it on social media and and um, just punt it through the facebook instagram twitter and that
1: yeah and and for the listener at home that's grant spelled spelt out your instagram is also grant lottering give him a follow guys it's it's a real inspirational ride and he'll make you feel lazy, but you'll you'll thank him. You'll thank him because in the future you'll be better off for it. So make sure you check out GrantLottering.com. I'll put it in the show notes, your Instagram handles and all that.
0: Mm. But the big challenge with this ride is going to be I'm gonna climb twenty two thousand three hundred meters because I've reconned the whole route already per kilometer. I know exactly elevation, everything.
1: So for people in foot, that's over sixty thousand foot of climate. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. In, in one ride. Yeah. In one ride. And you've been so good with your time and inspiring me to to put bigger goals in place and, and to to learn from others. I mean, you had an horrific life changing crash that's changed mm-hmm. your life, but I think you're able to help others try learn without having to go through something like that to ask some deeper questions. To ask some hard questions, um, but really, yeah, the visualization, the preparation, is there something else you want to leave? everybody that's listening to this? Um...
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think what um, what I would like people to remember me by or, or to see through me is that um, don't be scared to to set yourself a goal that that takes you way out of what you've ever done before. Don't limit yourself, especially not based on what others think you can or can't do, you know. So I've never ridden more than 1,300 Ks in one ride. Now I need to go ride 2,000. That's an extra 700 Ks. How am I going to do it? you know what? It's in my mind. I've done it already. And um, you just got to believe that, it's, that you're able to do it. If I could do 400, if I can do 1,000, if I can do one, three, I believe I can do two. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people limit themselves on their goals because they're so scared of not making it and being wrong.
1: And Or a failing. Yeah. Just, but, I mean, is it what? even a failure? Uh, Do you believe in failure if it's something uh, I, like I that?
0: I don't think it would be. I don't think it would be. If I if had done nothing with my life after my accident, I, that would have been a failure. That, that would have been sad, you know. So, um, but um, don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to, like when I didn't make it in 2017, the support I got, like, from people, it's like... You rode for 20 hours with hypothermia, how did you do that, dude? You know, you're crazy. But, you know, um, I didn't make it, but I tried it. I wasn't afraid to, to try it. So don't limit yourself, you know. it's um. If you told me seven years ago I was going to ride 1,800, 1,500 Ks, I would have never believed you. And here I am doing it. So it's all a matter of believing in yourself, not limiting yourself. So.
1: I think you that's such a,
0: life. sorry. You only got one life. Go for it. Go for it. Don't hold back.
1: I think that's such a fitting way to end. I could speak to you for hours and, and I'm sure we will connect outside of the podcast. So that is a fitting way to end it. You know, don't limit yourself. Think big, dream big. And and Grant, thank you so much for the time you've taken on this call and for inspiring so many people and you will continue to do so and, and what you do for the charities and these beneficiaries. So thanks so much, guys. Go to grantlottering.com. He's on social media as well. Grant, thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you. It's great.
1: Holy. Wow. I'm actually at a loss for words. That blew my mind. Um, I've met up with Grant. I've, I've chatted to him about the story, but to hear it just kind of all in one place at one time, That is so inspiring. Thanks so much to him for making the time. Please go check out his website. Follow him on social media. Let's get behind him when he does these I'm possible tours. He's really doing some great in the world. And I think he's kind of forced us to take a bigger look inside, ask some deeper questions, go set some goals, get out of that comfort zone. I know I'm going to have to do some thinking after hearing that one. So, guys, Thanks to you for downloading this episode. I'm just going to ask you one last thing. Please subscribe to the show. Leave me a five-star rating. Yes, you heard me right. Otherwise, I'll find you. I'll ask you why you didn't give me a five-star rating. No, but it helps, guys. It really does. Keeps me motivated to keep knocking these podcast episodes out. But really, I do appreciate you guys, each and every listen. Share it with a friend, especially this one, guys. Maybe there's a guy that's going through a hard time or or woman. Share it with them. you know, share in the stories. I see all those things. I appreciate any feedback. If you send me a personal message, I'll try to get back to you. I read them all. Guys, until the next one, dream bigger, set some goals, get out of that comfort zone. Guys, stay well.